The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. There is a judgment greater than anything you've ever known. It won't be long. Your life will pass by as a vapor and you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And every secret deed and thought Every wrinkle, every spot will be in view Before the one who knows all things The Lord of Lord and King of Kings You know the one you never knew While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from your sin And believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him From the judgment that's to come He is the shelter from the coming storm All creation shakes at the mention of his name He has power over life and death Every knee will bow and tongue confess Heaven and earth will proclaim That Jesus Christ is Lord To the glory of the Father will you bow He can save you from the might of all your sin This is the fight in which He stands In perfect victory While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from your sin And believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him From the judgment that's to come Shelter from the coming storm While you have breath You have a choice to make in life Turn away from all your sin And believe on the risen Christ You can find peace in Him From the judgment that's to come He is a shelter from the coming storm He's the only shelter from the coming storm.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray from the National Prayer Chapel. Get ready. Jesus is at the door. I'm going to read for you a passage out of Matthew 24, and then we're going to go to the book of Revelation. The things we need to understand, he is now at the door. The storm is not coming. The storm is upon us. Just the beginning of the great storm, but it is upon us. I listened to a man yesterday as he said that the great seals, none of them have been opened yet. I listened to others who say all of the seals have been opened. I think they're both wrong. Jesus is at the door. And the seals are unfolding before us with very, very rapid speed. Things are happening so quickly in our world. As the beast power arises with threatenings and violence. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. In other words, there will be many dead. Immediately after the distress of those days, so the storm is upon us. You're not going to miss the storm. You are going to be in the storm, and even now it is beginning to howl about us. The hellhounds of the devil are loudly barking. If you don't have eyes to see that, and you think you can go on living your normal American life, and that everything is going to return to normal, and that we're headed into a time of wonderful prosperity and peace, you don't understand the word of God. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus is coming. He's at the door. Now in Revelation... Revelation 6 begins the opening of the seals. And when we get to that sixth seal, this is what we read. As I watched, he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black, like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. As late figs drop their fig tree, these are asteroids striking the earth. Late figs from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is to happen just before Jesus comes. Don't tell me this is going to happen after Jesus has taken all of his people to heaven in some kind of secret rapture. That's just not in the scriptures. I would also tell you to go back and read again the story of Moses as he comes to Egypt to deliver God's people. You remember the plagues began to fall at God and Moses' word. 
they fell on both the children of Israel and the Egyptians. Not all of them, just the first. The first of several plagues fell to make the children of Israel so miserable that they were ready to flee from that nation. God is going to do that again. He is going to cause such pain and suffering. And you and I as believers are going to go through that pain and suffering to prepare us, to cause us to desire with all of our hearts to leave this earth and go to a better place. Some of you are quite comfortable here. You see no eager, desirous need to leave this earth and go to the heavenly realm with Jesus. And so we're going to go through great earthquake, the sun turning black because there's so much stuff kicked up into the atmosphere, asteroids falling from the sky. The sky receding like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island removed from its place. This sounds like a description of what will happen when the pole shift happens. And we're right at the verge of that happening. Now, I read, next comes the sealing of the Jewish people, 144,000 of them. And then... we find a whole group of people who were in heaven. A throng from every nation, tribe, and people. But if you go back to verse 15 in chapter 6, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and rocks. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Do you remember? I just read for you in Matthew 24, that same language. The, the wrath of the Lamb of God. For the great day of his wrath has come and who can stand it? This is a description of Jesus coming at the end of the sixth seal. Now, the seventh seal is opened. And this is where the wrath of God begins to be poured out in the trumpets and then in the thunders. Now, I want to take you again to the 14th chapter of Revelation. Remember, you have the seals opening under the sixth seal. No, under the seventh seal, you have the trumpet sounding, and then you have the thunders, the final judgments of God upon the earth, upon the wicked. And then we have snapshots, not sequential. But listen to this description. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. This is Jesus, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, Take your sickle, reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another description of the coming of Jesus Christ. And then the wrath of God flows out on the wicked. Now, I want to say some things to you today that are very personal of nature. And I'm going to share a story with you from a man by the name of G.C. Bevington. 
Brother Bevington uh, wrote this book, and it was published in 1920, the first time. Uh, He was an old man at that point in his 70s. He was born and ministered 1800s. He has just gone through a miraculous healing by God. And he's held a meeting and people have responded. They have wept and they have prayed. Now, before I read this, I want to tell you where I'm going. And please, please don't be offended by what I'm going to say. I need to speak truth to you. I need to I need to be very frank with you because there's no time to waste. Jesus is coming. He's at the door. The great sorrow of my heart right now is that I'm having a very hard time finding people who will pray with me. Most people that I meet who call themselves Christians, have no understanding of what it means to pray through. They have no understanding of what it means to pray through and get the victory. We pray these simple little prayers for Aunt Mary's toe, or we pray for, oh, bless our families, take care of our kids, We don't really go down there. We don't really know how to open our hearts. We don't even have the language or the vocabulary to be able to open our hearts to God and really be honest with him and gain the victory. Our prayers are shallow. Our eyes are dry. A great disappointment to me. I'm so eager to have a people who will learn, who will be honest, who will be hungry to pray. My heart overflows in the prayer closet. I weep before God. I cry out before him. I say, Lord, will you rescue me? Will you come and will you rescue me from this dark world? And I pray about my heart, and then I pray about others' hearts, and I I cry out to him by name for precious men and women that I love dearly, who are so utterly shallow. See, when I pray with a person, I know a great deal about them. I know by how they pray whether their heart is really honest before God or if they're still playing religion. Sometimes I'll pray with people and and everybody will have a little prayer to pray and then absolute silence. And finally, I can't pray anymore because I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm monopolizing. And I'll say to them, does anybody have anything else to say to Jesus? I'll say no. Are you kidding me? You have an opportunity to speak with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and all you can do is say a simple little prayer that has no depth? What? Jesus is coming. He's at the door. We better learn how to pray. So I'm going to share this with you because I want you to hear and see what I'm talking about. This is Remarkable Miracles by Guy Bevington. I'm going to begin reading for you on page 134. He's just finished a series of meetings. He says, We remained there all day Sunday and clear on into Monday evening, making about 36 hours of praying and praising and preaching and shouting. Someone told me that The souls who actually had prayed through had averaged one per hour during the whole time. So you see, it was a pretty fair meeting. He says, a pretty fair meeting, only one an hour. 
gains the victory. And now I come to another way that God has been leading his people. On Sunday and Monday, I felt I must go, but said nothing. I preached, or rather I tried to preach on Monday night, but the meeting was all prayer and praise. And all the time I felt that voice saying, go, go, go. Well, I supposed, of course, that go meant to go to my next meeting. So the next morning I told this to John and, and those who were, who were there. And John said, oh, no, Brother Bevington, your work has just begun here. We're all planning for the greatest meeting that we've ever held in this community. Well, I retreated to my usual place for solving problems. But from the first, all I could hear was, go, go. After three hours, I had to give in and go. The next morning, John hitched his horse up to the wagon to take me, as we supposed, to the depot some 12 miles away. I bade the wife and and the dear friends faithful. But the wife kept insisting, I cannot believe your work is done here and would not bid me goodbye. I was a bit confused myself as I had only had about a third of my anticipated railroad fare. I didn't have the money to go, but I was to go. So off we went. We'd gone about three miles when John looked back and he said, I declare... I believe that's Jim. I said, who is Jim? Now, I've left out something that we need to we need to hear. When John's wife first wrote to me and and asked me to come and hold a meeting, she stated that there were 14 sanctified people there, the father and mother of each of seven families. So on that first Saturday night, the last night I preached until after I was healed, I thought inasmuch as there were 14 sanctified people there, it would be safe to venture on a testimony meeting. So I turned the service over to the class leader. This is a Methodist church. I could hear some of them, but not sufficiently enough to clearly get their testimony. I could not settle myself with the ensuing proceedings and finally said to little Frank, who are these people who are testifying? Why, there are all the members here, the superintendent, the class leader, the officers of the church. Oh, they're all sanctified, Frank assured me. By the time the seventh one got up, I was in doubt as to their having a right to testify and noticed a woman laying a quid of tobacco on the bench as she got up. I suppose she felt the quid might bother or hinder the display she had planned. I endured until the ninth one and could not stand it any longer. So I said, Mister, you just sit down. I don't have to sit down for you, came the hot reply. I rose to my feet. I pointed my right finger straight at him and I ordered, You sit down now. Well, he dropped on his seat. He struggled back up to his feet, grabbed his hat, and started for the door. And all but 11 people in the congregation got up and followed him out. There were some 80 people leaving the service. The girl who'd gotten sanctified in that home back at the village and 10 more remained. Well, I did my best at preaching and then dismissed them. As we were going out, John's wife said, now keep behind me as that crowd is out there and I don't know what they might do to you. We stepped off the porch and up rushed the man I had called out. Out of all the tongue lashings a man ever got, I got the strongest right then. I did not reply to him and just said, come on, let's go. And we made our way on through. He and several others followed for some distance, calling me all the names in the catalog of vengeance. Now I want to return to where John and I were in the wagon. And he had just said, I believe that's Jim. When I asked who Jim was, he answered, the man you called down at the testimony meeting. He's my cousin. I can see he's bareheaded and looking 
kind of wild and yelling for me to stop. But Brother Bevington, you don't need to fear. I'll protect you, even if it's my cousin. Well, he was a sight indeed. Here he came on horseback, yelling, chasing, stop, stop, wait. So John stopped. Jim leaped off his horse. He rushed right up to the wagon and he threw his arms around me. Oh, Brother Bevington, pray for me. I've been in hell ever since that Saturday night. I said, Do you really want God? Oh, yes. I could tell he was serious. Drive up along the fence, I said to John. He did so, and John got down on one side of the wagon and I on the other, and Jim began to pray with us, still up in the wagon. In about an hour, he burst out, Oh, God, oh, God, have mercy, have mercy. Oh, God, have mercy. Save me from this awful hell that I'm rushing into. And then he called out, Brother Bevington, Brother Bevington, come over here, come over here, please. Take my hand, for I'm slipping into hell right now. Oh, come here quickly. I said, no, I won't come up there. You repent. I stayed at my post beside the wagon. Brother, I'm going to hell. If you had what you deserved, you would have been in hell a long time ago. Now repent, repent. I was determined he would pray it through. We were there by that fence all day long. Three times, some of his relatives came along. But they couldn't get him out of that wagon. One of his cousins, a wealthy farmer, came along with a flock of sheep, and he called out to John, Who's that in the wagon? Well, that's Jim. Well, what in the world is he doing in there? And Jim yelled out, I'm getting God. The cousin made all sorts of threats against me and John, but Jim stayed in his place until he'd prayed through. And then he jumped out at the end of the day, grabbed me, landed us both flat on the ground. He got up again, and he carried me all around for nearly an hour. Finally, he got on his horse and left, rejoicing as he went. Well, I said to John, I can't make any train now, so I guess we better go back to the house. That's just what John was expecting. Now, many will say, why, Brother Bevington, I thought you were going to the depot. Now, how would God lead you for the depot and then not get you there? Pay attention, for here comes an important lesson for all. We must remember that we are only human beings, and God does not always reveal his plans ahead of time. Instead, he just leads us as he sees best. God knew he couldn't, if he couldn't, uh, he couldn't undertake to explain to me that he meant to get me out there so that Jim would come and be in the public, subject to all the embarrassing scenes it would be necessary for him to go through in order to knock his church entity out of him. Only God knew what it would take to shake Jim loose from his long membership, the testimonies he'd been giving for ten years. <sighs> his hatred against holiness preachers who broke up that peaceful family, his good standing in the M.E. Church. If God had undertaken to explain all of this to me, he would have landed me somewhere out in the brush. Consider his wisdom. He told me, go, and allowed me to interpret the go as I saw fit, as that it would make no difference to him as long as I obeyed the go. Then he just took a shortcut to make the many points necessary to get Jim saved. God was well aware that I was nowhere nearly done in that vicinity, but he knew it was necessary to get that leader completely transformed and broken all to pieces so he could use him. Now, as Jim was on horseback, 
He could make better time than us. When we drove back into John's barnyard, here came Jim and his wife rushing up. She jumped off the horse and sobbed out, Oh, Brother Bevington, forgive me. I've been in hell ever since that Saturday night. We went right into the house where all of us fell on our faces in the dining room. And thus began one of the most remarkable seven weeks of my life, right there in that man's house. I never took off my clothes and never preached a sermon. I just lay day and night on my face, praying and weeping and groaning and pleading, imploring, beseeching, and and staying at the throne of God on behalf of that Methodist church and the membership of 300 people. Some would get through and strike out for their relatives and friends, and they would come back in the wagon loads, bringing provisions, feed, and even their cows. They would stay until the whole load got saved and sanctified. Then they would strike out after some other people. They kept that up for seven weeks, day and night. No one ate but one meal every 24 hours, yet someone was out in the kitchen cooking all the time. I got such a burden that I couldn't even get up sometimes, but just lay where I was praying, and they would come and feed me. Well, they claimed there were over 400 people down there, and most of them prayed through. Of all the times I ever saw this beat anything, some were praying, others were crying, others testifying, others preaching, others shouting, others making restitution, and I just lay on my face bathed in tears. When it was all over, I looked as though I'd had a right hard six weeks. The most remarkable case was that of Jim's wife, She, by nature, was a very boisterous woman. Before this meeting, she would run and shout and yell and give her testimony, put on quite a show. She was the first to get through, and she lay under the power of God some 60 hours. Uh, Stop a moment. After Jonathan Edwards preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His wife began to repent with everyone else. And she lay under the power of God. Jonathan Edwards picked her up and laid her in her bed. And she was there like a baby for many days he would come and gently feed her she couldn't get up she couldn't walk all she could do was weep before the Lord and be filled with his spirit and pray now please I want to tell you something some of you say oh we want revival Revival is messy. It's embarrassing. Revival is not something just poured out by God and, and we take the wonderful gift and say thank you and we remain our, we re, retain our dignity and our, our pride. No, all pride is broken. We're humbled before God. And we pray. The first sign of revival is a certain sound in the prayers. I was pastoring in Washington, D.C. at a place called The Gate, which was a, a coffee house and free medical clinic down on M Street in Georgetown. I remember the sound of the prayers in the Jesus revival, in the Jesus movement. It's a sound you never forget. I haven't heard that sound for years, not since the late 60s and early 70s. I haven't heard that sound anywhere. Oh, I've gone to some places where they said there was a great revival, like the Toronto 
so-called blessing. It was not the Holy Spirit. It was a kundalini spirit. I've been places where it was supposed to be revival, but the sound was not right. And the Spirit didn't move in people. When she arose, reading again, she was so different. There was none of that bold, hilarious conduct. She was so meek. She walked the floor, bathed in tears, wringing her hands. Not a word fell from her lips. She was like a little country girl of 11 summers. I tell you, she lived salvation after that. She and her husband... And many, many more lay there until they were sanctified. Of course, news soon reached the village that I'd come back. And here the people came. Even the preacher came and got sanctified, as did his wife and many of his members. So you see, it pays to mind God and trust him. He writes, Real Steady, unselfish prayer will move things. We need to mean what we say to God. Once a little girl said to her papa, who was saying that Jesus didn't mean all that he said in the Bible, Papa, if Jesus didn't mean what he said, why didn't he say what he meant? I shouted, Amen. That's reason. Well, I won't share any more of Bevington today. But I do want to say, Jesus is at the door. Do you know how to pray? Would you be willing to so humble your heart and so seek after God that you would forget about your cell phone and your computer and your entertainment and just go after God? Some of you need to begin by just confessing to the Lord, I don't love you. Oh, I say I love you, but I really don't. I love myself and I love my life and I love my ways and I don't want to change. Some of you need to begin your prayer with the Lord like that. Some of you need to acknowledge that you, that you love the sports and the tobacco and the alcohol and the drugs and the pornography that you love your wickedness. Jesus is at the door. And he's going to come in. He's knocking. And he's going to come in. The judge of all the earth. How do you stand today before the judge of all the earth? Do you love your wickedness? Do you love your arrogance? Do you love your unbelief? Some of you have never confessed the name of Jesus. You're too proud. Some of you have hearts filled with anger and bitterness, and you yell at your kids, and you yell at your wife or your husband. Some of you are very violent. A chip on your shoulder. Some of you are very selfish. You wouldn't give anything to anybody. And if you did give something, it would be a, a small amount. You wouldn't sacrifice for Jesus. You wouldn't sacrifice for his kingdom. Some of you gladly sacrifice and pour out your hearts. Some of you give so much that I wonder how you can even survive. 
but most, no. It's about me. It's about mine. It's about what I want. It's about what my goals are. When are you going to get ready? When are you going to dress for the kingdom of Jesus? When are you going to take that bath and get clean in the blood of Jesus? When are you going to finally say, okay, I want God. Okay, I want Jesus. I've done it my way all these years. I want Jesus. Do you really want Jesus? Or do you just want more satisfying religion? What is it you really want? That's what you have to get down and say to God. You have to say to God what you've been wanting, what you've been going after. We each choose our pasture. We say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. What pastures have you been laying down in? Have you been laying down in the devil's pastures? Or have you been acknowledging that Jesus is your shepherd and you've been laying down in his pasture? Some of you say, yes, Jesus is my shepherd. But I'm going to go lay down over here in the in the professional sports pasture for a while, and then I'm going to go lay down in this pasture over here for a while, and then I'm going to go over here. I want a little bite of grass from each of these different places. Jesus isn't enough for me. Do you understand? This is where prayer begins. Confession. Prayer doesn't begin with repentance. Prayer begins with confession. Repentance will come after the confession, if it's a real confession. But please may I say to you, this doesn't happen in five minutes or two minutes. It doesn't happen in a polite little prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep or row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. That's not prayer. We've said prayer is the opening of the heart to God is to a friend. And while that's true, it is much more than that. You see, Jesus is not just our friend. He is also our judge. And we have a backlog of wrath standing against us because of our behavior. And if you just say, no, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. And when he looks at me, he doesn't see me. He just sees himself. And I have imputed righteousness. No, you'll you'll not ever really pray. And because you'll not ever really pray, you'll never be sanctified and be made holy. And Hebrews says, without holiness, no man can see the Lord. And many of you, if you don't repent, if you don't confess and repent, if you don't pray, Jesus will come and you will be swept away. Now, in the story that I've just read for you, 36 hours of praying on one occasion. On the other occasion, several weeks of prayer going out after gaining the victory. And what do I mean gaining the victory? I mean putting down all of the sin, all of the lies, all of the self, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Having the fire of God in your heart. That comes from the prayer closet. It doesn't come by human ability. It doesn't come by human power. It doesn't come by some strategy for success with God. It comes by earnest, humble confession of my nothingness before God and of my wickedness before a holy and righteous God. See, Jesus is not just my friend. 
He's also my judge. And if there is a backlog of wrath built up against you, as it says in Romans, the first chapter, if you have just stored up wrath against yourself and you have not confessed that and you have not repented of that and you've not put it under the blood and you've not been transformed and created into a new creature, what hope do you have for salvation? You have none. You're lost. You're hell-bound. I urge you to go on the internet and just Google sinners in the hands of an angry God. This was a reformed preacher, Presbyterian, Jonathan Edwards. You need to read that sermon. He preached it to his church congregation and they blew him off. He preached it in a neighboring church and they received it and began to weep and pray and cry out to God. And that began the first great awakening that prepared the way in America for the rebellion against England and the establishment of America with our our constitution. We have to prepare now. And the only way we can prepare is by coming to the Lord in humble and honest confession. Jesus is coming. I've read to you two places in Revelation and one in Matthew 24. And I'm going to read to you one more place. I'm going to read to you one more place. It's found in the book of Revelation. I'll read for you Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True, With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and in his name, and his name is Word of God. Do you remember, this is written by John, In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. We learn in Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So now we have a whole army of people coming and they're dressed and they're riding with the Lord God of heaven to the earth and they're dressed in fine linen, white and clean and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the third place in Revelation where we find Jesus coming. And that coming is not to redeem his people. They're already with him. That coming is to bring the final judgment on the beast's power. The beast will be captured. The false prophet will be captured. They'll be cast into the depths of the fiery pit of hell. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. 
the Lord will rule over the earth personally for a thousand years. He'll be chained in the pit at the end of the thousand years. He'll be loosed for a short time. And he goes out to make war with the saints of God. And he is captured by an angel. Stronger than he is. And he is then cast into the fire of hell. And then we have the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, every person who is lost will come before the throne of God and hear what they have done and what their sentence is because they refuse to acknowledge the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They refuse to pray. They refuse to confess. They refuse to repent. They refuse to obey. And one by one, they'll be taken by the angels and cast into the fire of hell. And they will be conscious of what's happening. They will know If you miss heaven, you will know when you are picked up physically and cast into the fire of hell to be eternally separated from God. Well, we're out of time for today's broadcast. Tomorrow is a day of prayer. I invite you to call and be serious in your prayer. You can write to me at National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And Brother Tom, thank you. Your offering came in the mail yesterday. After all the pledges come in, we're still almost $1,000 short for radio for this month, and we're at the end of the month. I know some of you in the past have given even $1,000 or $500, or 100 or $10, whatever Jesus moves in your heart to give. If you want to keep this broadcast on the air, then you'll need to give. So write to me, National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And it will be a great encouragement to go and Look at our website and see if you gave online. You can do that by going to nationalprayerchapel.com. Nationalprayerchapel.com. One word. I pray that today has been helpful to you. And my hope and my desire is that you'll get on your face before God, alone or with friends, and begin to pray. Real prayer, honest prayer, heartfelt prayer, confession of sin, turning to righteousness. God bless you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless. For the presence of His glory